Our scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. We bow our hearts and pay attention to the reading of God's word. Our Lord says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? This is a good word of our Lord. May be seated. I have a confession to make uh, this morning. Many of you know that I am haunted by the clock. It is my enemy in so many areas of my life, but particularly when I get up here in the pulpit, I don't like the clock. Uh, Someone has forced me into an agreement that I owe him $200 every time that I mention how long I'm going or the time, and I want to be true to that, but at the beginning, so that I don't feel the need to say this later, would you please bear with my weaknesses and pray for me? Um, I don't see a way out of going long today. Um, and I've, I've tried to cut it down, but if you need to leave, you are welcome to leave. I would invite you and plead with you to stay Because obviously it's, to me anyway, I think under the guidance of the Spirit, I I think it's important enough that the whole message needs to be proclaimed and you need to hear it. Um, Thank you for just indulging me and letting me get that off my chest. I feel that I can move forward with a clean conscience now. So let's, uh, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, indeed, it is our great hope that you are a God of mercy and grace. You are a God slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You are a God who keeps steadfast love for thousands, Lord, and you forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, and how much iniquity and transgression and sin do we need you to forgive us of from this past week or from this morning? How many sins have we need of forgiveness for. Uh, Father, we should have prepared ourselves to come into your presence among your people and worship you with cleaner hands and purer hearts and minds that are less distracted than they are. But Father, here we are and we are We are here as we are, and our hope is not in ourselves or in our abilities or in our own repentance and faith even. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so for his sake, Father, we pray 
that you would bless us this morning from your word. Not because we deserve it, but because you are deserving of it. You are deserving of completing the work of Christ in our lives. Lord, you are deserving of having your people exude the glory of your grace in their lives. And that comes by having hearts that are tender and more deeply attached to your beloved son and to one another. So please let your truth impact us this morning. Lord, give clarity as I preach your word or I seek to. Please fill me with your spirit and give me an ability to do that in a way that's honoring to you and is good for your people. Lord, I pray for the grace of being able to preach your word this morning in such a way that when I come down out of this pulpit, I have a clean conscience before you. Lord, please give us grace. Lord, and change us for your eternal glory and for our love of you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the title for our message this morning is Using Prayer as a Means of Grace. And we're picking up where we left off last week. Um, I don't know how much time you spend in the Psalms, but some of you know I've been working through Psalm 63 very slowly in, uh, in prayer over the last couple of weeks. And um, I think that Psalm 63.1 is the key, or at least holds the key to understanding the role that the means of grace have in our lives. In Psalm 63, verse 1, David says, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. The Hebrew word there is a word that speaks of longingly. I will, I will seek you with zeal. I will seek you with a longing of heart. It almost communicates a painful yearning after the Lord, a, a pining for him. You can hear that in the rest of this verse. He says, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I think that that verse holds for us the key to understanding why the means of grace are important for our lives as believers. As believers, we are those who are sojourning in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I hope you know that. There is no spiritual water that this world has to offer you that will ever satisfy. You can lap it up all you want. Riches, homes, possessions, status, pride, pornography, sex, None of it is going to satisfy your soul the way you were meant to be satisfied in God. 
David knew that. And more than knowing that, he was, his soul was awakened to that reality. He said, my soul, it yearns for you, Lord. And I'm seeking you. I'm seeking you. Because I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The means of grace are designed by God to be the way that we seek our God in a dry and weary land. Where is the spiritual well to which we are to go to find the satisfaction that our souls are longing for? Well, we know that that well is God, but how are we going to get the bucket down? How are we going to draw the water? How are we going to put that water of, of that living water of God in Christ? How do we get that in us as believers in greater and greater ways as we move forward in this dry and weary land? Don't you feel parched as life is going on? Don't you feel dry and weary? How are you going to get new life? How are you going to be sustained to keep sojourning with the Lord through the long years of your pilgrimage? Um, the bucket and the rope and the handle and the crank that God has given us to draw that water out, that is the means of grace. And as we go to use those instruments, those means of grace to draw water out, it's not because we're using them that God gives us spiritual water. It's because we're showing faith in him and he is pleased to bless the expression of true faith with grace. So when we're using these means of grace, we're not just talking about exercises or rituals, but we are talking about pathways where the longing heart journeys in order to pursue God. Where simple and sincere faith exercises itself to draw near to God, the one whom our souls love. If you know this, God has promised good to those who seek him. And the good that he promised is nothing less than himself. Do you know that? Psalm 73, 28, the psalmist says, You O Lord, you are my good. Right after confessing that my heart and my flesh may fail, there is nothing in this world for which I long and yearn, but you, O God, you, you are my good. You are my portion. God promises to give us that goodness of himself, that nearness of our Lord. He promises to give that to us when we in faith seek him. And when we seek him in the ways he has ordained. Now one of those ways, one of the most important means that he's given us in that pursuit of him is prayer. And that is what we're continuing to look at today. How do we use prayer as a means of grace? Last week, we asked the question, what is prayer? And in essence, we answered that in four parts, right? Prayer is, first of all, the pouring out of our hearts to God. It's not a mere mental exercise. It's not mechanical, but it is a heartfelt plea being poured out to the Lord 
in his presence. And secondly, adding to that, it is a plea that is coming forth in faith, holding up the name of Christ. We are praying in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, pleading his blood and his righteousness as the only reason for which God should pay attention to our prayers. We not only come pouring our hearts out in the name of Jesus Christ, but we come doing so in the Holy Spirit. We must be praying in the Spirit of our God. And then we must be praying for things that are according to God's will. And when all of that comes together, as we bow our knees and our hearts to our Heavenly Father, then we are practicing true prayer. And we will find God growing us in His grace and nearness through it. Now that's where we left off last week. That was basically just an introduction to help us understand what we're talking about when we're talking about prayer. What is prayer? Well, prayer is this heartfelt pleading unto the Lord in the name of Christ by the power and ministry of the Spirit for the things which God wills. But now we have the question, how do we use prayer as a means of grace? We have this tool, right? And God has defined what this tool is, but how do we use it? I think we can learn a lot about the right way to use prayer as we read through scriptures, right? Particularly the Psalms. You're talking about the largest book in the Bible, 150 chapters that is nothing more than the prayers of God's people set to music. It is a book of prayers. Shows us how important prayer must be to the Lord. And as we read these Psalms, we find these spirit-inspired prayers showing us how to pray to God in a manner that he wants us to pray to him. In different seasons of life, different challenges and the joys and the highs and the lows, how does God want us to approach him in prayer? Well, when we go to the Psalms, we find all of those examples listed out for us and we can take those Psalms and make them our own. So we can learn much about how to use prayer from the Psalms. We can learn much about how to use prayer by reading the prophets. Right? As a church, we're reading through Jeremiah right now. And we've seen many prayers that Jeremiah has offered up to the Lord as he is surrounded by an ungodly people who do not want to hear the truth. You want to learn how to pray for the people of America? Go read the book of Jeremiah. We learn a lot about prayer by reading the book of Acts. We learn a lot about prayer by reading the letters of Paul, even by reading the book of Revelation. All throughout Scripture, we find people under the influence and guidance of the Holy Spirit offering prayers to God. And those prayers have been preserved for us in His Word to teach us how God wants us to pray. And so we can learn a lot from Scripture about how to pray. But I think, in my opinion, my personal opinion... The most helpful instructions on how to pray come from our Lord's teaching on it in the gospel, in the gospel accounts, particularly as we're looking at today, Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, verses 11 through, no, verses 7 through 11, I want to bring out three things that will help us understand how God wants us to use prayer. First of all, we see the proper practice of prayer. Secondly, we see the proper attitude we need to take with us when we pray. And thirdly, we're going to look at the proper expectation 
we should have when we come to the Lord in prayer. Now, I'm not overly good at making up subtitles like that. I'm sure there's a better way to list these things out. But this is what we're going to follow today. <laughs> proper practice, proper attitude, proper expectation. These are the things that Jesus makes known to us in this chapter. So in Matthew 7, the first step in the proper practice of prayer, you notice from verse 11, is understanding that prayer is actually a means of grace. Jesus, in verse 11, clearly identifies prayer as a means whereby we obtain good things from the hand of the Lord. He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? Now, Jesus could not have stated the matter more clearly than that. God is willing to give good things to His people, but here's the condition. He will only give those good things to the people who ask Him for them. This is something we need to remember about prayer. The prayer is not just something that we should be doing. Prayer is actually at the heart of a living relationship with God. And our lack of prayer is why we often feel that our relationship with God is not the way it ought to be. There are good things that the Father holds in reserve in His hand. There are rich spiritual blessings that He will and is willing to pour out upon His people, but He will not pour them out on His people until they pray. That's Jesus' teaching here. Whatever your understanding of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man is, it must encompass or be encompassed by this teaching. James 4.2, you have not because you ask not. Period. Right? Amen? God has designed our relationship with Him to work itself out in the context of prayer. And the more you pray, the more you are going to learn how to live and walk in fellowship with God. In fact, we may not recognize this in our younger years of walking with Christ, but you older saints might be able to confirm this with me. That as we have matured in the Christian life, we have begun to see and realize how wise it is on God's part to reserve blessings and only dispense them to us when we've prayed to Him for them. See, making prayer the means whereby we obtain good from God's hand is really a safeguard for our relationship with the Lord. God could, if He wanted to, just pour out everything good upon us, whether we, whether we were asking for them or not. And that would create a bunch of self-indulgent... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? What's that? Self-indulgent, self self-reliant, entitled... Christians, believing that it's our right simply to receive these things. 
But by making prayer the mechanism, the means whereby God chooses to dispense His good blessings on His people, that keeps us from becoming that way. It keeps His blessings from becoming over-realized in our lives and so far so that we would then begin serving the gift rather than the giver, right? Begin serving the creature rather than the creator. See, it's because God has ordained prayer to be the means whereby we obtain good things from His hand. That is what enables His blessings to be a means of deepening our sense of relational attachment to Him rather than becoming a hindrance in our relationship to Him. And you guys know this to be true. When you have prayed and sought the Lord in prayer over something that meant a lot to you, such that you were pouring your heart out to God, pleading with Him to move on your behalf or on behalf of another, you know when God came to answer your prayer, you felt more intimately connected to Him than you ever did before. You saw the hand of God moving in your life. You knew He was near. More than that, you knew He had heard your prayers and that He cared enough to answer them. Something very stupid happened to me this morning in that line. Just some, I don't mean stupid, just very insignificant. I lost my, my, my earbuds that came for free with my computer. They're expensive, but they came for free and I lost them. Right? My wife would tell you, it's not a surprise, I lose everything. But I'm sitting this morning, and for some reason they came to my mind, and I was getting ready to come up here, and I thought to myself, just a quick prayer, Lord, I, I just can't find these things. I don't know why I was thinking of them. It just came up out of nowhere. I said, Lord, I can't, I can't find these things. And it's really not a big deal, Lord. If you want to keep them from me, I, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not living or dying on whether or not I have these, these earbuds, right? I said, but it would be nice to find them. And I reached down into my backpack, not even looking for them. And my hand comes to a section in my backpack that I know I've searched before. And what do I find? I find these little stupid earbuds, right? Now, I started, I know this is ridiculous, but I started crying when that happened. Because you know what that meant. It was not, it was not about the earbuds, right? It was about my God hearing my prayers and answering them as a sign to tell me, I hear you. And I know you, and I love you. Yeah, what does it say in the Psalms? He delights in the well-being of his servants. He doesn't begrudgingly give us things that are for our well-being. He delights in our well-being. We'll get to more of that in just a minute. But that's what prayer is meant to do. It's designed to safeguard our, our attachment to the Lord so that his blessings don't become a means of disrupting our sense of unity and love for him. Now, that could be a full sermon on its own, and in some ways it has been. <laughs> in some ways it has been. But what, what makes this section in Matthew 7 so helpful is not merely that Jesus identifies prayer as a means of grace for us. It's that he actually gives us instruction on how to use it. You guys remember in Matthew 6, Jesus has already told us in the context the kind of praying that God wants us to pray. That is, he's already told us the kind of prayer that gets God's attention, right? The Lord's Prayer. Well, here in Matthew 7, Jesus is revealing to us not the kind of prayer, but the kind of praying that gets God's attention. In verse 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find it. Knock, and the door will be open." 
Uh, that tells us very clearly that praying involves asking. And praying involves seeking. And praying involves knocking. Now, a couple of things I want to point out before we look at these individually. First of all, I want you to remember and keep in mind that all of these things are commands from Christ. When he says ask, when he says seek, when he says knock, these are commands from the Lord. Which means that using prayer in this manner is a matter of obedience to Christ. If we are not praying the way that Jesus is commanding us to pray here, then we are not truly living as disciples. That cuts, and that ought to sting. That ought to be a razor across your skin and salt being rubbed into it. This is a matter of obedience. It's a matter of actually living out discipleship in the name of Christ. If we are not praying the way Christ commands us to pray, then we cannot claim to be living truly as his disciples. Now that also means something else. These commands, the fact that these are commands, tells us that just as prayer is not an optional part of the Christian life, neither is the manner in which we are to pray optional for the Christian life. It's not left open to our imagination to try and figure out how to pray in a way that God will accept. Right? He's already given us the content of what the Lord wants to hear from us. Now he's giving us the manner in which we are to approach him in prayer. As we seek to pray and lay our burdens down to the Lord, how does he want us to do that? Well, this is the form. This is the structure. It's not optional. This is how we will find God's blessing when we use prayer as a means of growing in grace. All right, so first of all, the first thing Christ commands us to do is to ask God for good things. See that here? Jesus commands us to ask the Father for good things when we come to him in prayer. Now, it's encouraging to know that I don't have to be ashamed of asking God to do good things in my life. You don't have to be ashamed to come before the Lord and ask him to do good things for you. I don't have to feel guilty about asking him to provide me with things, or things that are for my spiritual and physical well-being. I don't have to carry any reservation with me into the prayer closet asking to see God's face or to know his nearness. I don't have to come before him hesitantly and say, Lord, you know, if, 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 if you'd be so kind as to kind of hear what I'm praying, Lord, I, and I don't want to ask you for anything, but if you would want to do something for me, I don't want to specify what it is, but if you want to do something good for me, I would receive it. Like, that's not how God wants us to pray. He wants us to have specific things identified, and he wants us to bring them to him and ask him for them. He wants us as his children to identify good things for him to do in our lives and then usher those good things as requests into his presence. I love it when my kids come to me asking me for good things. They ask me for a lot of things that aren't good, <laughs> right? That are not good, and I don't bless them with those things. But when they ask me for something that is good, I am more than delighted 
to pour upon them that good thing. We don't have to be ashamed to ask God for good things. So long as we are asking him for things that his word declares to be good, then we are not only free to ask him for those things, but we are commanded to ask him for those things. In other words, you and I have a right to come before God and humbly ask him to give us good things with no other reason than this. His son has told us to do it. And so we do it. So we're to use prayer as a means of grace by using it as a means of asking God for good things. Secondly, we're not only to ask God, but we are also, after asking, to seek God for good things in prayer. Now this implies a couple of things. First of all, it implies action. We're not only to ask God for good things, but once we have made our requests known in prayer, we are to seek after those good things. Prayer is not to be this passive relationship with the Lord, like, a, um, you know, like some kind of list we pass on to him and say, well, here, Lord, here, here are all the things I want you to do. Here, here, this and this and that and that. Here you go. And then we go about our business and never give a second thought to it. Uh, we often do that. Now, you may not amen that, but we do that, don't we? How many prayer requests have we brought up on a Wednesday night, for example, that we've never returned to? That we've, once we've left the prayer meeting, we haven't even thought about them, right? We may have asked, but we're not seeking. To seek implies action. And we must be active in our prayer relationship with the Lord. So it implies action, first of all. Secondly, this call to seek God for good things also tells us that the blessings of the Father are not just lying around on the surface waiting for us to go pick them up. They are, in a sense, hidden blessings. And we have to search for them. Now, lazy Christian like me will not like to hear that. Because I want things handed to me. I want this nice, big, spiritual platter to be presented to me every single morning as soon as I open my eyes and I go to get out of bed. But it doesn't work like that. There's not been a single day in my Christian life where I have ever woken up with assurance of salvation. I've had to labor unto that with the Lord in prayer that morning. I've had to go before the Lord in new ways every single morning and ask for the Lord to renew my sense of His love for me. Renew my hatred of sin so that I don't fall into it, Lord. Deliver me from temptation or I will walk headlong into it. The days when I have not sought the Lord like that are the days that I have been at my lowest spiritually. We are commanded not only to ask for good things, but we're commanded to seek those good things. They're not just going to come to us on their own. These blessings have to be sought. And in a sense, God hides good things for us in the palm of his hand, and he closes that hand. 
And he waits for us to come take hold of his hand and, as it were, to, to peel back his fingers and uncover those blessings in prayer. We've got to seek for them. You fathers know what it's like to do things like that with your children. Right? You're not being mean. You're trying to play around and you enjoy their pursuit. So it is with the Lord. Now, thirdly, we're not only to ask for things, we're not only to seek for things, but Jesus adds another picture to all of this. We are to knock on a door in order to have things. Now, it's very interesting to me that Jesus put it like that. Prayer, in other words, is like a person knocking at a door that is shut. You don't knock on doors that are open. You might peek your head in and say, hey, can I come in? But you don't knock on a door and pound on that door when it's open. You pound on doors that are shut. You pound on doors that you can't open. You pound on doors that you want to go through, but you can't find the way. Now, does this not communicate to us something about what it's like when we pray? Very often to us, prayer is like coming up to a shut and locked door and doing nothing more than beating on it and asking God to open the door. Maybe it's just me. But that's one of the most discouraging parts about prayer, isn't it? You feel that the heavens are covered over with a curtain of bronze or iron, and you're, you're, you're pounding on the heavens with your prayers, but nothing's getting through, and there's no sense that the Lord is hearing you, and there's definitely no perception on your end that God's answering your prayers. It's like a shut door. Well, what Jesus tells us here informs us that that is actually a normal part of what prayer is supposed to be like. Now, doesn't that reverse our thinking? How often is that feeling of pounding on the doors of heaven and waiting for them to open, how often is that used as an excuse not to pray for you? Right? My prayers aren't doing any good, Lord. You're not hearing. You're not answering. You're not doing anything. Why should I keep praying? This is pointless. Well, Jesus comes alongside of us and he says, no, 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 no. You don't, son, daughter, you don't understand how prayer is supposed to work. Prayer is designed to be like that. And we ought to embrace that design and get busy using prayer according to God's design and not our thinking about how prayer should function. Right? So when we understand things like this, we begin to see what true spirituality in the Christian life looks like. It's not passively going about our business with a little Jesus sprinkled on everything. The Christian life is a life of laboring after God in order to receive blessings from his hand. The Christian life is a life of laboring to discover and to have open to us the full riches of spiritual blessings that He wants to pour out upon us. It's a life of actively pursuing God with a longing that is birthed in our hearts by His Spirit and is directed by His Word. 
We don't seek the Lord as Christ is commanding us to seek the Lord here because we do not perceive the blessings that he has hidden away for us to discover. We don't see the blessings that are just behind the door. That if we'll just keep knocking, he will open that door for us. We give up too soon. We give up on God and we show our lack of faith, really, by choosing not to continue seeking him in this way. But you know, God has designed our lives to function like this. He's designed our lives to be like an inquirer with him. Someone coming and asking him, seeking him out, wanting answers, seeking the blessings. He's designed our lives to be like miners, right? Not underage miners, but those who go down into the mines and mine out the riches from the earth. Love that analogy from John Piper. That's what we're doing when we're seeking God in his word and when we're seeking God in prayer and when we're meditating on scripture and putting it in our hearts. We are digging down into the earth of his word so that we might uncover the blessings and the riches. We give up too soon. You know, God, let me ask you this question. What husband here or what wife here does not want to be pursued by your spouse? I know my wife wishes I would do many more things to pursue her and show her my love. What spouse does not delight in that kind of pursuit? It's no different than it is with God. A relationship is about pursuing and about being pursued. God wants us to pursue him and he has concealed certain blessings from our perception at the moment so that we would seek him in order to have them pursue him. See that in just for example, Proverbs 25 two. it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of Kings is to search the matter out. God conceals the matter so that it would be sought out. Proverbs 27 verse eight, God says to us, seek my face. What does that imply about his face? It implies that it's hidden. We don't see it, and so we have to seek it. And God says, seek my face. And the psalmist says back to the Lord, your face, O Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Verse 8 says. Now that makes plain to us that in some way, God is hiding blessings from his people and waiting to reveal them only when they come seeking him for them. So how do we use prayer? Well, we use it by asking. We use it by seeking. We use it by knocking to have the the blessings of God's grace unveiled for us. Now, there's something else to notice about the three ways Jesus commands us to use prayer here. Alongside the proper practice of prayer, Jesus commands also, Jesus commands also tell us something about the kind of attitude we must have with us when we come to God in prayer. We must have the proper attitude alongside the proper practice. Now in Greek, all of these commands in Matthew 7 are commands that are to be obeyed constantly. 
they are written in a present tense, simply meaning that it's something that we are always to be doing. It's something continual. You may have heard others say that you could translate these commands in Matthew 7, 7 as keep asking or keep seeking or keep knocking. That continual pursuit is what Jesus is getting at here when he teaches us how to use prayer. If we desire to see our prayers met with God's blessings, then we must adopt an attitude of persistence in prayer. We cannot think that we've fully obeyed Christ's commands in this verse simply because we've come to God once and asked him for his blessing. Or because we've gone out once and sought for those blessings. Or because we've knocked on the door once. Right? Jesus calls us to be, con to be constant in prayer and to be relentless in asking and in seeking and in knocking. To even to persevere in prayer and to make ourselves in a way unendurable in prayer. To make ourselves unable to be endured in our pursuit of God in prayer. Until the good things that God has reserved for us in his hands have actually been granted. And that closed hand of God opens to give us the good things that we're seeking. Isn't that what Jesus taught us in his parables on prayer? That we need to have this kind of persistent attitude. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus illustrates the kind of attitude we need to have in prayer by comparing praying to a friend pounding on your door at midnight. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? You ever had someone pounding on your door at midnight? Thankfully, I've never had that happen. But imagine you're laying there in bed with your family. You're sleeping, and all of a sudden someone's pounding on the door and waking you up and asking you to come down and answer the door. And you yell out the window, man, I'm not coming down, I'm already sleeping. I'll see you tomorrow. He says, no, I had a friend. I had someone really important come to me, and I don't have everything that I need in order to receive this person. Can I borrow something from you? You said, you woke me up for that? Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's midnight. He can last another six hours. Wait till I wake up. That's kind of an impertinence, isn't it? There's a rudeness there. There's a boldness there that's being presented in that illustration of what prayer is supposed to be like. Prayer is supposed to be like that friend standing at the door and refusing to take no for an answer. Saying, no, I've got a need. I need the answer to this need, and you have the answer. And I'm going to stand here knocking on the door until you get your butt out of bed and get down here and open the door. Sorry. But that kind of, that kind of pursuit of God, that's what Jesus says we must have when we come to seek the Lord in prayer. You remember the parable of the unrighteous judge in Luke 18. This parable of a widow coming to plead her case before an evil judge. Though at first this judge was unwilling to hear her plea and to answer her, what was it that changed his mind? What was it that moved that judge to all of a sudden be kindly disposed to this widow and give her what she was seeking? It wasn't the goodness of his heart. It wasn't his chivalry. 
It was the widow's obstinance. You see in verse 5, he gave her what she was asking for because she kept pestering him. He said, let me give her what she wants or else she will wear me out. She's going to beat me down with her pestering if I don't give her what she's wanting. <laughs> well, in Luke 18, verse 1, we learn that this is the model that Jesus holds up to his disciples to teach them how they ought to pray. You ought to have a holy obstinance to you when you come and seek the Lord in prayer. A refusal to take his silence as an answer or a refusal to take a no for an answer at times. Jesus says this is the model for us to make sure that we're praying and not losing heart. That persistence that was showed by the widow is the attitude that God wants you to have when you seek him in prayer. If you think of it, having this attitude that's ready to wear God out before you're willing to give up on your request. A holy tenacity. We not only see this in Jesus' parables, but we also see this working itself out in Jesus' earthly ministry, don't we? My favorite example of this is the Syrophoenician woman. Matthew 15 describes her as a Canaanite. You know what that means? That means that this woman belongs to the cursed race of Ham. Cursed descendants of Ham. She's one, she belongs to the descendants of those Canaanites that the Israelites were supposed to wipe out under the judgment of God. And here this woman is, and she's pleading with the Lord. She's begging the Lord, Lord, my daughter has a demon. Please deliver her. How does Jesus respond to her? It's kind of shocking. It says in Matthew 15, 23, that he did not answer her a word. No reply, no answer. It doesn't even seem like he acknowledges her presence. He just keeps walking on in silence. And here's this woman following after him, yelling out, Lord, son of David, please have mercy on me. And Jesus just keeps walking. Is that how you picture Jesus ever? Not how I normally think of Jesus. She's asking, she's seeking, she continues to plea and cry out to the Lord even more. And then you notice in verse 26 how Jesus responds the second time. He turns around and he calls her a dog. He says, you dog. It's not right for me to take the blessings that you're asking for from the children and give them to you. <laughs> right? You're a dog, and it is not a good thing for me to take the blessings of the children and give them to you. Now, if there was ever a closed door in prayer, I don't know what else would, would qualify as this. Like, this is a closed prayer before the Lord. He is silent. He's moving forward. He is ignoring her. The only time he turns around to interact with her is to call her a dog and say, it's not good for me to give you what you're asking for. What would you do in that moment? Would you give up? Would you take that as the seal over your relationship with the Lord that God truly had turned away from you and you were not belonging to him? You might as well go Live, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow you die. Well, that's not what this woman does. 
You know what happens in the account? She just keeps knocking on Christ's door. She just keeps searching for the blessing she's asking for. She just keeps asking him to bless her daughter. Even when it seemed to her, and you've got to get this if you're going to understand the real nature of prayer, the attitude we've got to have in prayer. Even when it seemed to her perception that the door was shut and locked and was not opening, she just kept knocking. She continued crying out to the Lord, and through her holy obstinance and her unrelenting persistence, that locked door was finally opened, right? And this account of Jesus, this whole scene is designed to do one thing. It wasn't to be mean to her, and it wasn't to discourage her. It was to draw out her faith, to solidify something that was genuine inside of her. She was coming to the Lord in faith, but that faith needed to be perfected. It needed to be refined in order to receive a blessing from His hand. And so what does he do? She comes with that measure of faith and he draws her further on so that she would continue having her gift of faith perfected. And when it reached the point of the Lord where he had designed this whole interaction, this, this culminating point that this interaction was, was meant to lead to, when we finally reach that point, Jesus turns around to her and not only gives her what she wants, but he praises her faith. That kind of dogged determination is what God wants us to have in prayer. And he reserves his blessings for those who come to him praying like that. People who, no matter what, will refuse to drop the issue and will just keep asking, seeking, and knocking, and pounding on the doors of heaven until those doors open. And their souls have the spiritual blessing God promises. Beloved, I, I know that we're going on and we have one more section to do, but I need to say this. There is nothing that can substitute for this kind of attitude in prayer. And if we lack this mindset that is tenaciously determined to seek the Lord until He blesses us, It means either one of two things, and I'm not sure which one is worse. It means we either don't want the good things that God promises to give us, we don't want them badly enough to fight for them. Or secondly, we don't really believe that God wants to give these good things to us. So we either don't want them bad enough or we don't believe in them enough. One of these is the result of a lack of love for God and a life of fellowship with Him. The other is simply a result of the lack of faith. How much do we want a greater sense of fellowship and blessing with God? Well, believer, in a real sense, it's up to you. The invitation is given, the promises have been made, the call has gone out, and now it's in your hands. What will you do with them? Jesus has told us that untold riches of glory and grace are reserved in the palm of God's hand for those who will come seeking them. And the hammer, 
with which we are to pound on the door until God opens it is the hammer of prayer. It's up to you whether you will take up that hammer this week and pursue those blessings until you have them. So we not only need the right, um, the, the proper practice of prayer or the proper attitude of prayer, but now thirdly, we need proper expectations when we come to prayer. Try and be somewhat quicker on this one. Christ not only commands us to ask and seek and knock for things, he also tells us that we should expect something when we ask and when we seek and when we knock. We not only should be asking for good things, but we should be expecting that God will give those good things to us. This is what Christ promises. You notice in verse 8, if we keep asking, Jesus says, it will be given. If we keep seeking, Jesus says, we will find what we're looking for. If we keep knocking, he says, the door will be opened for us. Now, those aren't just statements. Those are promises for us to hold on to. And the only way that those promises are going to be precious for you and have any weight with you is if you know by experience the grueling measure of praying with God in unanswered prayers. Knowing what it's like to gut it out with the Lord when you don't feel like He's hearing you and the door doesn't seem like it's opening and you can't find what you're looking for and He's not answering your questions. It's only when you know the pain and the turmoil and the struggle of that kind of pursuit of the Lord in prayer that these promises will actually mean anything to you. Jesus guarantees, He swears by His own name, if you seek, you will find it. If you knock, the door's going to be open. Just ask and you will receive. I wonder if we actually believe him when he says these things. Do I believe Jesus when he says these things to me? According to this promise, no matter how long we've been asking, seeking, or knocking on a door for God to give us a blessing, not a single moment of that asking, seeking, and knocking has been done in vain. Because our triune God ensures us that these promises of Christ will find their fulfillment with each and every prayer that we labor to bring before Him. Now, let me offer some qualifications to that. Those answers to our prayers may not come in the way we are expecting them to come. They may not be the kinds of answers that we're expecting. You remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 9. Paul talking about his weakness in the flesh, his thorn in the flesh. He says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. What's he doing? He's praying. He's praying persistently. He's asking the Lord continually, Lord, please remove this weakness from me. And what is the Lord's answer to him? Paul says, Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. I don't think that's the answer Paul was looking for 
when he was imploring Christ at first. Basically, Jesus comes to him and says, no, I'm not taking this away. Because this is going to lead to the further unveiling of my glory in your life. Now, from that point, Paul accepts the Lord's answer to his prayer. But it wasn't the answer he was expecting. When you're praying and you're asking for these blessings from the Lord, those blessings may mean you losing your job. Those blessings may mean you losing a child. Those blessings might mean that your life collapses. You get sick. It may even mean that you die. That may be God's answer to your prayer so that you would have the blessings for which you're praying. But what God will teach us in his dealings with us when the answer to our prayer is not what we're expecting, what he's doing in those moments is he is allowing us to be overwhelmed by trial. He is allowing us to feel as though everything in life is collapsing and we have nothing else to stand upon in order to prove to us through the trial that when all else fails, He remains. He remains standing. His hand remains under us. He will not let us go. You know, the only way to find that out is to have every other prop knocked out from underneath us. You've got to be falling in order to feel the Lord catch you. He may allow difficult times to come into our lives. He may allow real struggles to come upon us. But they're all designed to teach us that even in the midst of the struggle, He is trustworthy and He's faithful. So these answers may not come the way we're expecting them to come. But let me say this also. They may not come in the timing that we expect them to come. We may be like the man by the pool in Bethesda. John 4, or is it John 5? John 5. Sitting by a pool, no telling how long, but we know he had been crippled for 38 years. Sitting there, waiting for the stirring of the water so that he could get down into that water and be healed of his, of his ailment. You know, God's intention behind leaving him as an invalid for 38 years was so that his son would be glorified in healing him. But the man didn't know that for 38 years. He sat there longing to be healed by that pool for years. And the Lord's answer to his prayers came in a way he didn't expect and in a time he didn't expect. We may be like David, told that we're going to be king and not made king for years, for decades later. We may be like Abraham, who received so many great and rich promises from God concerning the promised land and the descendants, and even being used by God to be a blessing to the nations of the world, and yet God may leave us in a sense that we won't actually see those blessings come to pass in this life. But they will be fulfilled eventually, and we will see them. So Christ has made these promises to us, And because he's made these promises, we know that these promises will not fail. The Father will not allow Christ's promises to fail. 
Christ's death for our sins, his victory and resurrection, his intercession for us at the right hand of the Father guarantees that all of his promises will remain unbroken and will find their fulfillment. Here's something important to consider. While we are waiting for those promises to be fulfilled, if there's a delay, we're not getting what we're asking for, the door doesn't seem to be opening, we're not finding what we're looking for. What God expects us to be doing in the meantime doesn't change. From the first moment we ask to the time when it's fulfilled, what God wants us to be doing in between does not change. What does he want us to be doing? Well, he wants us to keep asking. And he wants us to keep seeking. And he wants us to keep knocking. Now, just quickly... What is it that Jesus gives us that guarantees this promise? In Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11, Jesus makes clear that it is the goodness and the fatherly disposition of God towards us that guarantees our prayers will be heard and answered. Jesus rests the guarantee of receiving and finding and having the door opened upon the good nature of God. And so the reason we should not lose heart but keep striving to lay hold of God in prayer is because God is good in His nature and He is disposed towards us as a father is disposed towards His children. That's His position towards us. He is positioned towards us out of the goodness of His nature and as a father towards us. And Jesus amplifies that reality by comparing God with us. He says, if you being evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask Him? Let me ask you, are you an evil person? Yes, you are. You're evil. I'm evil. We're all evil. We're all bad. We're all corrupted with sin. And yet, we still have within us the capacity to show love and to do good to people. When our children come to us asking for something good, we don't give them something bad. When my children come to me asking for clothes or asking for shoes or asking even for makeup, ah, it's hard for me. They're growing up too fast. Asking for earrings, right? Wanting popcorn. My heart delights to hear them ask. For those things, and I love to respond to their request by giving them something good. Now, if me, if I being evil can do that with my children, is God not all the more kindly disposed towards his children who come to him? God is good, and he's good beyond our imagining. And so when we come to him asking and seeking and knocking for good things, the good God who is our Heavenly Father is sure to give them. Sure to give them. You know, the important point that Jesus is making here is not that our problem in prayer is that we don't know how to pray. That's not our problem in prayer. We all know how to pray. Do you know how to talk to someone? Do you know how to ask someone for something? Do you know how to communicate with another person? Then you know how to pray. <laughs> you know how to make yourself known to God. 
Jesus says that's not our problem. Our problem is not an ignorance problem, it's a faith problem. We have not because we ask not, and we ask not because we don't believe we will receive when we ask. Our problem is that we do not have enough faith to pray. Where there is little prayer, you can count on it, there will always be little faith. You are never more before God. Your faith is never more before God than what it is when you're on your knees praying. This is the key for prayer to be a means of grace to our souls. We must believe in the good nature of God and that he is, as a father, kindly disposed towards us. This is Hebrews 11.6, right? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe what? That he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You must believe when you're seeking the Lord in prayer that you are doing not only what God wants you to do, but then also that He is going to reward you for doing what He wants you to do. Do you trust in Him enough to do that? Do you believe in Him enough to seek Him as your Father? To lay your soul bare before Him and wait for Him to dump the riches of His grace upon you when you ask? Let me close on a quote from Spurgeon. This is from his sermon titled, Knock. If you want to look that up. I believe it's number 1682 or 1672, one or the other. Spurgeon writes, Beloved, let us abound in supplication. Depend upon it that failure in prayer will undermine the foundation of our peace and sap the strength of our confidence. But if we abound in pleading with God, we shall grow strong in the Lord and we shall be happy in his love and we shall become a blessing to those around us. That's a good word. May we take that word and be encouraged by the words of our Lord and get busy seeking and searching Asking, knocking, trusting in the Lord, seeking Him in prayer. Let's pray together now. Father, we, as always, are indebted to You for such kindness and grace that You've shown us. Lord, thank You for giving us not only what You want us to pray, but how You want us to be praying. God, give us grace to walk according to the revelation of your word here. Give us the faith to follow after Christ and to believe in your beloved son or to believe in him enough to obey his word. Give us faith to, to, to hold on to you, Lord, and to make the revelation of your goodness and your fatherly kindness, to make that by faith our own or to own it by faith and to trust in you and rely upon you according to how you've revealed yourself to be. God, give us grace to do that. Help us as we sing our closing hymn to lift up hearts of prayer to you, Lord, to praise you, to ask for your blessing as we go forth into this week. We don't know what's coming. We don't know what you've prepared for us, Lord. But I pray we would be doing all that we can to prepare ourselves to meet it and to meet it well by seeking you in prayer. 
Lord, bless us now for the sake of Jesus Christ and in his name. Amen. Benediction comes from Deuteronomy 4.7, just as last week. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God, whenever we call on him? And may you go forth and call upon him and know his sweet and powerful nearness. Amen. Amen. Go in the peace of the Lord. Amen.